Father, what a glorious truth to know that the price has been paid, the debt has been paid. Our sin debt is ours no longer if we have trusted Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth to know that Christ alone is our cornerstone, that we have no other hope, no other recourse, no other joy, no other treasure than Jesus. And so, Lord, now as we come to your word and as our children head down to OPBC Kids Worship, we pray that Jesus would be more of a treasure to us today because of what your word teaches us, that your spirit would work in us to make us more like Christ, that we would see Jesus as glorious because he has lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserved, and is raised again and living forevermore, that we might live forever with him. We celebrate Jesus today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, we're going to dismiss our kids to head down to OPBC Kids Worship right back here in the corner. Miss Joanny and some volunteers. You can follow Mr. Robert in the back. So if you are three years or right at three years, two and a half to fourth grade. How about that? Two and a half years old up to fourth grade. We'd love for you to head down there and they're going to get you settled. You're going to have a great time today. And parents, we're going to ask you at the end of the service to pick them up down the hill so we don't have to walk them back up with all of the traffic. So that's going to be the way it's going to work. So at the end of the service, you'll just walk back down with them and pick them up. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask the rest of us, if we could, to turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are jumping back into Exodus, our story of redemption series. It's been about three months since we've been able to be in Exodus. We've looked at other things and we've studied through um, what it looks like to be transformed and changed by God through Jesus Christ, what it looks like to be the people of God in the middle of all of this. We're continuing to look at this same truth because there's no real difference in the gospel message, whether you're in the New Testament or the Old Testament. It's the same gospel. It's the same gospel yesterday, today, and forever. The context might change, but the content never changes, and that's what we celebrate. That's what we remember. But we are jumping back into our series in Exodus And we come again now to Mount Sinai. So Exodus chapter 20 is what we call the Ten Commandments. We we sometimes call it the law, but if we're being honest and we actually know what we're talking about, the law is a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. Uh, There are page after page after page of law in the Bible. And today, as kind of an overview of where we've been and a reminder, and then an overview of where we're going, I wanted to dive into this truth about the law, God speaking his law to his people, unfolding the ethic of his kingdom, how God is demonstrating his character through these laws that he gives, how he's setting a fence for life for his covenant people. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the law And I want to remind us today of what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. So if you would, just look at Exodus chapter 20. I'll remind you of where we are, and then I'll remind you of where we've been. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2 says this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even the statement, I am the Lord your God, is a revelation we found here in the book of Exodus. As God tells us his covenant name, as God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush to call Moses out to go and deliver his people who are in bondage. This is the story of God and his redemptive plan. The whole book of Exodus is not a story of the people of Israel. It's a story of God and telling us who 
he is so that we who are not living in the middle of the wilderness, even though it feels like it most days, even though we're not the people really waiting for the promised land, although we are the people waiting for the promised land, even though we're not there at Mount Sinai, we can be people who look at God, understand God, know God, and we can live as his people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what have we learned about this God, this Lord your God, this covenant God, this eternal God? The first thing we've learned about God is that he is a redeeming God. The people of Israel could not set themselves free from their physical or spiritual bondage. They had been in bondage in Egypt as slaves. When Joseph was sent as a slave, sold into slavery into Egypt, he went there, was risen all the way to the highest positions of power in the land so that God's people could be saved. But then when the people came in, before long, they're subjugated to slavery. They couldn't set themselves free, even though they had power in numbers, even though they had great strength. There was nothing that they could do to set themselves free and redeem them. No, God acted on their behalf. God acted in his grace to redeem them. The people of Israel couldn't do it for themselves. We learned that God is a redeeming God. He set them free out of the house of slavery, as he says in verse 2. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We see that God is a rescuing God. He's a redeeming God, and he is a rescuing God. He rescues his people by his power and his grace because of his character and because of his love. All of the rescuing is contingent on God being God. Because what we learn really quickly is the people did not deserve to be rescued. It didn't take long before we learned that once they left Egypt heading towards the promised land, if it were me or you in charge, I would have sent them back to Egypt really quickly. You can have Pharaoh because I'm not wandering the wilderness with you for any length of time. They did not deserve to be rescued. But what we call God acting on the basis of his character and his goodness and his sovereignty, we sometimes call that sovereign grace, that God is the one who's in control. And it's not because of any goodness within these people that God would save them. It's instead because of his goodness and his grace. He pours out his mercy. Not because of how great the people are, but because of how great he is. This is the hope of salvation for us. This is the hope of our rescue, is that God did not rescue us because we had something to offer him, but because he offers us great grace and mercy in his sovereign will. God is a redeeming God. God is a rescuing God. We've seen so far in the book of Exodus that God is a holy God. From the moment God appears in the burning bush before Moses and he's told to take off his sandals for he is on holy ground to now at Mount Sinai where God in his presence comes on top of the mountain and there in the lightning and in the smoke and in the cloud, we're told don't touch the mountain. Don't even let your livestock on the mountain because God is holy and we are not. There is a difference between God and his people. His holy presence demands reverence and a unique type of worship that cannot be given to another. Remember, all of the gods of Egypt were not worthy to be worshipped by these people, by the Israelites. But Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go that they might go to the mountain and worship me. That they might serve me there. God demands to be worshipped because God is holy. 
We've seen that God is a covenant God and even his name, the Lord, Yahweh, your God. This is his eternal covenant relationship with his people. He has made and will keep his promised covenant that he made with Abraham. He told Abraham that he would bring him out and take him to the land. He he told Abraham's son, grandson, great-grandson of this covenant, and he will keep his covenant. The people God has set his sovereign grace upon, he will fulfill that covenant. He's going to keep his word. He has set his grace upon the people of Israel and will keep not only his side of the covenant, where he's saying, I'm going to take you into the land, but he's making provision for them to, for him to be able to keep their side of the covenant. So in the law, he's actually saying, here's, here's how you guys keep messing up. Here's how I'm going to make sure there's some sort of payment for that. He's making provision because he is a covenant God. We've learned that God is a present God, always sustaining his people, always providing for their needs, always leading his people. Even when it felt like they were wandering and lost, his pillar of fire and his pillar of cloud were leading them. He's always with them. He's present among his people. And then in his presence, we also learned that God is a speaking God. He spoke to Moses. He spoke through Moses and Aaron. And now at the mountain called Sinai, he is speaking for the people to hear. And when God speaks, his people must listen and obey. So here we are again at Mount Sinai. Here we are again, God visiting his people. We see God's holy presence, and he's really in his holy presence driving the people to fear. With the thunderclaps and the lightning, the people are kept away. But we've learned already as we come to this Mount Sinai that now we've been invited to Mount Zion for eternity where there's no more fear. We're coming now in celebration because our God has made a way that we could be in his presence. No longer are we as people who are believers in Jesus Christ told to stay away. We're told to draw near. We have access to come into this holy presence of God. And so I want you to hear hope today, even as God is unattainable and seems so distanced at times. I want you to hear that he is a present God who redeems his people, rescues his people, who keeps his covenant. And he has spoken and we are invited into his presence because Jesus has fully paid for our sins. All of that sin debt that separated us from the holy God. And so that brings us now to where we are today, an overview of the law to help us understand a couple of important questions. And that's what I really want to do today. I just want to do two things with these two verses and some other scriptures to help unpack the reality of the law. I want to do these two things first to consider the purpose of the law of God in the lives of believers. Like what good is the law? If the New Testament tells us that we're not under the law, then why are we bothering Why go through the Old Testament? And I've had plenty of people ask me that over the years. Why are we wasting our time with this if we are no longer under the law? What's the purpose? And then I want to ask this question. How is the law fulfilled? If all of us fall short, how would we ever be able to fulfill the law? Because if you're like me and you begin to read through the laws, A, I get a little confused at times. B, I get a little distraught at times. And the law brings us to this point of really death upon death as opposed to life, unless we see how it has been and can be fulfilled in our lives. So why is all this important? Well, Martin Luther put it this way. 
And if anybody in church history understood and dove deep into the realities of the law versus the gospel of the law and the gospel and how they interrelate, this is what he said. Virtually the whole of the scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon the truth of the understanding of the law and the gospel. What he's saying is that unless we understand what the law can and cannot do, what the law is intended to do, then we can't understand the gospel. We can't understand how the gospel applies to our lives and really does set us free. So I want to dive into what the purpose of the law is. And you guys who have been around a little while know that if I'm going to tell you what something is, I'm probably going to start by telling you what something is not. Because most of the time when we're trying to define something, we make the mistake of defining it and never realizing that there are some things we're still carrying in there. We've got to tear down some stuff before we can build up some stuff. We've got to say some stuff that, that this is not. The law is not meant to do. What is, what, what is the law not meant to do in the life of a believer? The first thing I want you to see that the law cannot do is the law cannot bring redemption. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 20. How does God speak to them? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He spoke all these words. He's going to speak all of the law to them, but they're all hinging upon this reality. The people have already been redeemed. God brought them out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out. He didn't say, written across the sky in Egypt, here's my law, follow it, and I will redeem you. He redeemed them, then gave them the law. So the first thing we understand is the law cannot bring redemption. Redemption is accomplished by God's grace, not by keeping the law. And this is an essential reality for us as believers, not just for our own lives. We need to come to terms with this in our own lives, because what we tend to do is we tend to measure our success in the Christian life by how well we, we take measuring rods out. And we go, how well am I doing this? 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 And you're going to fail and you're going to find yourself distraught and you're going to find yourself under condemnation until you do this. You ready? Until you start comparing yourself to other people. Right. Isn't it interesting how as soon as we take the law as the measuring stick away and we start measuring ourselves by how good other people are, then we begin to look better. But the law is not meant to bring redemption to us. No, the law is meant to instead drive us to Christ. Jerry Bridges put it this way. We tend to give an unbeliever. So imagine this. It's not just that this is important for us. It's important for us as we go out into the world and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. We tend to give an unbeliever just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ. Then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf and go on to tell them all of the duties of discipline, of discipleship. Like, now you've got to do this and 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 do this. And we've done away with the gospel. But the gospel is not just the diving board that you use to jump into the pool. It's the water you swim in. We need the gospel every day as believers. The, the grace that brought salvation to you is the same grace that teaches you, that disciplines you. We must respond to even the discipline in our lives on the basis of grace, not the law. The law cannot bring redemption. It was never meant to do that. God redeemed his people, then gave them the law. 
The second thing the law cannot do, and there are many more, but I just wanted to give you these two. The law cannot bring life and it cannot justify you before God. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at the fact that in Christ alone can we find justification. And in Christ alone do we have newness of life, that we are made into new creatures. The law, instead of giving life and justifying, the law confines everyone under sin. Romans 3, Romans 6, Galatians 3, all make it clear that the law is not setting us free and the law is not giving us life. Now we're told instead that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If the law could bring life and justification, then there would be no need for justification or righteousness by faith. So I, I just ask you, how was Abraham justified? How was he made righteous? Was it by the law or was it by faith? Well, Scripture tells us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it couldn't have been the Ten Commandments because God had not given them yet. And yet Abraham was considered righteous because of faith, because he believed God. And so what the law does is it shuts everyone up under sin so that faith in Jesus becomes the only way to righteousness. The law cannot bring redemption. The law cannot bring life, and it cannot justify us before God. So what does the law do? There are many more things the law cannot do, but I do want to give you three things that the law can do, that the law does as its purpose. And these are eternal purposes. These are helpful purposes. These are purposes originally and purposes today for the law and the life of the believer. The first is this. The law of God marks us out as the people of God. Look back at the text. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. He, he's got a personal investment in these people, this covenant relationship here. God was not just saving a random people from Egypt to bring them out to worship. He was making a people for himself. That's what we just celebrated with the Lord's Supper, is that the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed to purchase people from, for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that we would become a people unto him. We say it every Sunday. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is what God is accomplishing. He's marking out his people as the people of God. So when he's speaking all of these things, verse 1 of chapter 20, he's setting out an ethic for his people of what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom. The law shows that we've been given new life, that we couldn't accomplish it by ourselves. We couldn't keep the law. If you can't keep ten commandments, surely you can't keep the hundreds of other ones that are in the pages of Scripture. And we're told now that we've been given this new life. It shows that we've been given a new identity. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He's going to tell them again that I'm your God. You're my people. There's a new identity because of the redemption and rescue by his grace. It shows that living in the kingdom with God as our king looks a certain way. We don't get to choose the rules. God speaks. And he says, this is what it looks like to be my people. Since Israel was given a new life after God delivered them, after he rescued them and redeemed them out of Egypt, the law was going to function like a fence to show Israel what it looks like to be 
the sheep of God with God as their shepherd. What it looked like to be kingdom citizens with God as their king. What new life was going to look like. What their new identity would look like. The law given at Sinai was not some arbitrary reality, but it stemmed from the character of God. So when he says, you should have no other gods before me, why? Because there are no other gods. I'm the only God. I'm holy. I'm worthy of worship. The purpose of Israel's obedience was now going to be to reflect God's nature. To reflect what he intended when he created humanity to reflect his image to the world as image bearers of him. And so God's law was establishing this unique identity of God's people. This is what God's law does. So when we love one another with the love of Christ, it's identifying us as New Testament believers, as the people of God. When we serve others without considering ourselves higher than they are, we are marking ourselves out as the people of God. When we follow the word of God and the law of God, loving God, loving our neighbor, we're being marked out as the people of God. This is what the law does. The law of God also makes a guide for restraining evil. And this is really good news. One of the arguments that people come to me about when it comes to the existence of the God, they say, well, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, then why is there evil in the world? Seems like I'm stumped. I mean, you can imagine that would stump me. And my reaction usually is if God isn't all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, why isn't everything a lot more evil? He's restraining. Just imagine if God wasn't restraining the world, how, how it would have already burned to the ground. You remember all the way back in Genesis, like four years ago when we were there? And we were studying in Genesis, and the whole world seemed to be living unrestrained. So what did God do? Sent a flood, destroyed the whole thing, started over. There are some days, if you're like me, that I'm just like, Tuesday would be nice. I mean, if you want to do that, like, I mean, I know it takes 100 years to build an ark, but we got technology now. Like, surely I can get it done by Tuesday and we can get on the ark and you can take care of the rest. You ever feel that way? Because I feel that way. That's the reality of the world we live in. But the law of God is meant to be a restraint to the whole world. This is the way scripture puts it in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law exists to set the whole world accountable to God. Now no one can go, I didn't know. It's a reason why the vast majority of the world knows that stealing is wrong. It's because God set it in place to restrain evil. The law restrains sin by holding people accountable. In this way, this is probably the easiest way to put it. In this way, the law is useful in today's world because it's a lot like a speed limit. We know that stealing, murder, laws of justice and fairness, laws of personal responsibility, we know that these things are important in our world today. And yet people will break the law. So what do we do with it? Well, I look at the law, like I said, like a speed limit out on 60 out on the Anderson Highway. The speed limit is coming through Powhatan 55 miles an hour. Now, most of you may think that the speed limit is 60 because it's Highway 60, but it's not. That's the route number. 
you're supposed to go the speed limit. The speed limit is 55. But most of us, not me, because I'm a total law keeper and you all know that, and I'm the only one speaking on camera right now, most of us in a 55-hour zone will recognize that I'm probably not going to get pulled over if I'm going 60, 62, 63. If I keep it under 9, like over, they're probably not going to pull me over. Yeah, right? I mean, this is the time that nobody's, there's no camera on you. Well, there is a camera on you. But this is the time to nod. You know what I'm talking about, right? We all know what I'm talking about. 55 mile an hour zone means keep it under 65. It's kind of the way we live a lot of the times, isn't it? But all of us know not to go 95. The law of 55 may keep us under 65. That's restraining. It definitely keeps us under 95. That's restraining. Without the restraining law of God, we'd all be eating each other right now. That's how evil we would be. That's how evil this world would be. But instead, the law of God restrains evil by making us all accountable. The third reality of what the law accomplishes, and this is really important for us, and Scripture speaks to this often, is that the law of God is a mirror it's meant to be a mirror to reveal our inability to please God without faith. The law acts as a mirror to expose our sinfulness, to expose our inability to be holy without divine intervention. We look at the law and we say, I can't do that. And God goes, yeah, you're right. You can't do that. Jesus did that. And now, now you can trust Jesus. We understand that without divine intervention, we're going to be guilty before God. The law exposes our sinfulness. The law exposes our motives. How often have we come to a point where we, we, wanna, we can't keep the whole law, but we want to keep enough of it to make ourselves look better than other people? And when we come to the whole law and we begin to understand that once I've broken one law, I've broken all the laws, the law is honest with us and exposes our motives. The law exposes our hearts. This is what Romans chapter 7 tells us as the Apostle Paul writes. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. What he's saying there is I was coveting. I just didn't realize it was coveting until the law said don't covet. And then I went, oh, that's what I'm doing. Oh, I want their stuff. And my evil heart coming in contact with the law said, oh, okay, then I'll keep coveting. That's the reality of the law. Jesus comes along and says, this is a matter of the heart. This has always been an issue with the law. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say, if you have hate in your heart. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, if you've looked with lust upon someone. It's a matter of the heart. And the gospel exposes our hearts. But I want to help you understand this when the law is like a mirror it becomes like a teacher to us a tutor that shows us god's holiness shows us our sinfulness shows us our need for salvation and i heard this on a video recently and some of you have seen it the video american gospel is really helpful and it's just a great illustration have you ever known anyone to look into a mirror see something in their teeth pull the mirror off the wall and use it to floss that's stupid but that's what we do with the law. 
the law exposes the fault within me and I go, oh, then I've got to try harder. Let me, let me take this law and let me try harder. Let me make sure that I do better and do, hard, do, do things that I need to do to make myself right. But that's not the purpose of the law. The law exposes that it's a heart issue for us and we'll never make it right. Only divine intervention through Jesus Christ can make it right. So I leave you in this hopeless place where the law shows you you can't. The law exposes the dirtiness and utter depravity of your heart. The law shows you that you need to be restrained, otherwise you would be Hitler. We have to be restrained. The world would burn itself down if God wasn't restraining. So what do we do? Then what can we do? How can the law be fulfilled? If we can't keep it, if I can't keep the whole thing, then how is the law going to be fulfilled? What is necessary to fulfill the law? I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 22. And for the next few moments as we close today, I want to give you two realities that I think are going to be helpful and hopeful for you as we see now what the gospel has to say about being fulfilled in our lives. If I can't keep the whole law, does that mean that I just quit and don't try? What do I do? How do I live? How do I live in such a way that would be pleasing to God and show that I'm a follower of God? Here's what it looks like. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. People were constantly testing Jesus. He is the word made flesh. He is walking around keeping the law of God because he is the one who spoke the law into existence. And now a lawyer comes to him, and I always think that's ironic. A lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And this is what Jesus said to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we tend to stop right there and we go, those are Jesus' laws. I don't need to worry about anything else. Read the next part. On these two commandments depend all the other law and prophets. He doesn't abolish the rest of the law and prophets. He says you fulfill the law and the prophets when you do these. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. When you love your neighbor as yourself. Love, the whole law of God is fulfilled in the love of God. By God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And that this is love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we see God's law fulfilled in his love for us. Because Jesus came and kept the law and paid the penalty for our breaking of the law. We see the law of God fulfilled in the love of God, in our love for God as a response in worship. That we forsake all competing loves. That we forsake all of the things that would grab our heart and take part of our heart and we worship the Lord our God. We see the fulfillment of the law in our love for our neighbors. Because we demonstrate that the love that's been shown to us is now shown to others. We've been forgiven, so we, for, we forgive. We've been reconciled, so we reconcile. We've been loved, so we freely love. The law of God is fulfilled in the love of God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that because this should be full of hope for us.
and should be hopeful for us. But it also can be a little bit precarious for us because if you're like me, you struggle with competing loves. I love my family. That's not a bad thing. But can I love my family with a love that comes from God in a way that doesn't put them first but honors the Lord? So I'm loving him with my whole heart and then loving them properly. I love you. That's not bad. But isn't it easy for a love to take an idolatrous place in our lives because we're loving something more than we love the Lord? And I can't love you appropriately unless I love the Lord my God with all my heart. The second, he says, is the same as the first. We have to have that love for God before I can love you appropriately. I love my background. I love my heritage. I love my history. I love my family. It's really easy for that to become an idol. That I easily put it in a position of it needs to be defended and held on to when sometimes some things in my past just need to be done away with. Isn't the hope of the gospel that the past is in the past? I'm living for a kingdom that's coming. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage us. Those competing loves can all be brought to Jesus. And when they're put in the light of Jesus, guess what happens? They're shown for what they are. So much less. So much less. The law of God is fulfilled in the love of God found in Jesus Christ. And the final point for today as we see what the law can do, what the law can't do, and how the law is fulfilled, this is what I want you to see. The law of God is fulfilled by faith in Jesus. Because Jesus fulfilled the whole law. The law of God is fulfilled by faith in Jesus because Jesus fulfilled the whole law. We uphold the law by faith. We fulfill the law by faith. Without faith, we're told, it is impossible to please God. By faith, we receive the gift of Jesus' law-keeping. By faith, we receive this perfect achievement record on Jesus' record. He has, on, for our behalf, on our behalf, he has worked out all of this obedience perfectly. And in him, by receiving him, by trusting him, by faith in him, we become righteous. I want you to think about this for just a second. Jesus was perfect in his obedience during his earthly ministry. Perfect in his obedience in his earthly ministry. Like, I'm not perfect right now. Like, in the last ten minutes I haven't been perfect. Like, I'm sitting here worrying about this thing blowing over. Like, I can't preach and not be worried. That's how imperfect I am. Right? I'm, some of you are sitting there thinking about what you've got to get done this afternoon. Like, we, we can't go an hour, sometimes ten minutes, without being imperfect. Jesus was perfect in his obedience, in his action and in his heart. Why? Why? To prove how righteous he is? He's God. He couldn't have sinned. He's God. He didn't have to prove his holiness and his righteousness. You know why he did it? For you. For me. He kept the whole law 
because you and I couldn't. He kept the whole law so that he would be a perfect sacrifice in our place. Because you and I couldn't. He did this on our behalf. And we trust him. We don't just trust the cross and what he did there. And we don't just trust the resurrection and what he did there. We trust the entire lifetime of Jesus and all he did there. He was obedient on our behalf. And what that allows us to do by faith is to uphold the law by turning our backs on all of our pitiful, warped efforts of trying to do something that proves we're righteous. And no longer do we put confidence in our ability, but we put our confidence and our trust in the one who satisfied all the law demands. And he did it for us. So when someone is saved by repentance and faith, what that really means is they're released. We are released from the power of sin and the condemnation that comes in the law. In salvation, he takes the old heart of stone out and gives us new hearts where his law is now written on our hearts. And and instead of this external pressure of the law telling us, be better, be better, be better, be better, be better. We have an internal reality now of the Holy Spirit who gives us life from the inside out so that now we can walk in obedience without the external pressure. The law is not meant to be a tutor to you anymore. You have the Holy Spirit. You do not need to be taught by the law. No, the law now, the law now restrains the world. The law now marks us out as the people of God. And the law now points us over and over and over again to Jesus so that we would trust him and not trust ourselves. I want you to hear the good news of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died in your place taking your sinfulness upon him. But the hope of the gospel is this. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What's that he who knew no sin part? He had lived the sinless life that you and I couldn't live. Perfect obedience to the Father. Perfect obedience to the law. So that you and I now can have all of that righteousness given to us. When you see that clearly, why would you go back to your old slave master? Why would you go back to the law? So we're going to study the law, but we don't want to study the law as something that's going to keep on wrapping us on the knuckles every time we are wrong. No, I want you to study the law with me, and I want it to be sweet to you. Because in its sweetness, what it's doing is it's pointing you to Jesus. Because he's enough for you. Trust him today. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the grace shown to us in the law that shows us our need, that would clearly mark out for us that we are not worthy. We do not deserve to be rescued or redeemed We do not have any righteousness of our own that would point out to us so clearly our need for Jesus that we cannot and will not and would never pursue Christ on our own. But, Father, thank you that you loved us in our brokenness and our sinfulness enough to send Christ who lived the life we could never live 
died the death that we deserve because of our separation from you and our sin, now lives again so that we could live forever, justified, made right with you through Jesus Christ. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we look back to how you worked among the Israelites, how you worked in the world then, how you spoke the truth into their lives, how you marked them out as your people. We look now at how you're working among us, and we need to be marked out as your people. We need to be clearly defined as your people and know how to walk in your ways. And we look forward to the day when we see you face to face, when all that is questioned will be clear, when all that is by faith would then be sight. Help us to walk in the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, and faith in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.